Amen. You may be seated. Turning your Bibles this evening to the Gospel of Luke and chapter 19, we're looking together at verse 11 through 28. 19, 11 through 28. Let's give our attention now to the Word of God. Luke 19, beginning with verse 11. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minus and said to them, Engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him, saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, Are you, and you are to be over five cities. Then another came, saying, Lord, here is your mina which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit, and you reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, Take the mina from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine, who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. When he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, our God, we thank you for your word, but confess readily our coldness and dullness of understanding, how often we, we don't find the truths that you are seeking to communicate. We pray that this night you might open our eyes and open our hearts to receive your truth and that it would bring forth much fruit for your glory. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Throughout our study of the Gospel of Luke, we have encountered our Savior's teaching on a vast array of topics. 
We've seen him already in the Gospel of Luke instructing his disciples on keeping the Sabbath day, on how to receive forgiveness of sin, and most recently of the fact that we are to be remembering the needs of the poor and many other issues. But I think one of the most interesting things about our Savior's teaching is the frequent way that Jesus uses common, ordinary, everyday events to illustrate important spiritual truths. Just to name a few, think of, of what our Lord says, Behold the birds of the air. They don't toil, they don't, they don't sow, but your heavenly Father feeds them. He's, he's just using a very common, ordinary, everyday situation. Again, he, he talks about a lamp when it's lighted. Well, what do you do with a lamp when you light it? Do you put it under a basket? Do you hide it? No, you put it on a lampstand. So let your light shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Or think of how he, he uses the prayers of the Pharisees. This was something that every single Jew had witnessed. They had heard it. They had seen it in the temple or in the synagogues. And Jesus says, do you see how these Pharisees pray? Don't pray like that because that's not pleasing to God. And so he's using these ordinary situations. But one of the, the most common ways in which our Lord drove home the point he desired as he was teaching was in the use of parables. And that is certainly one of the things that we see once again in our text this evening. What is usually referred to is the parable of the minas. Now, that might be a little bit iffy for us because we don't usually know what a mina is. I'll explain that in a little bit. But the primary focus that what Jesus is driving at in this parable, we could subtitle it a parable of doing business for God. Learning to think and to act in a way that is pleasing in God's sight and glorifying to his name. Now, if you're familiar with the Gospels, particularly with the parables, you may even be thinking as we read these words, this is awfully similar, very close to the parable of the talents. And we know the parable of the talents. Jesus or, talks about a king calling his servant, giving him five talents, calling another servant, giving him two talents, and calling a third servant, giving him one talent. And then when he comes back and finds that each one has, has made and profited by the use of those talents, he utters those words that we all long to hear one day, well done. Good and faithful servant. But this particular parable, while there are similarities, we also need to be mindful of the fact that there are differences as well. The parable of the talents was spoken one to two days before the crucifixion. 
this parable is being spoken a week before. Jesus has not even arrived in Jerusalem yet. In the parable of the talents, the focus is upon the king and his servants. But here we have an additional dimension. We have the king, the nobleman, and we have the servants, both good and bad. And then we have a third group of citizens who rebel against his authority. Yet another difference, the parable of the talents. Each person receives a huge amount of money. So a talent was equal to somewhere around, we could say in modern terms, $2,000. Whereas a mina was one to two days labors of value or salary, and it was probably more like 100 possibly $200. In the parable of the talents, everyone received a different amount. One received five, one received two, one received one. In the parable of the minas, everyone receives the same amount. Each one receives the same amount. Now, brothers and sisters, these are not meaningless details. In this parable, the Lord Jesus is concerned with different issues than the other parables that he's told with similar elements. We want to consider what those issues are. We want to find out what is the point of this parable, and perhaps most important, we want to find out what does this parable have to do with you and me tonight? How does this affect our lives? And we're going to try to answer these questions in three headings. And the first is the need for this parable. In other words, why does Jesus tell this parable, this particular parable, at this particular moment? And the key to understanding that is twofold. We want to look at verse 10 again, and we want to look at verse 11. We can say that generally speaking, we need to remember where Jesus was. And where was Jesus? He is still in the home of Zacchaeus. So as he was speaking, we're told, as they heard these things, the things that come before at Zacchaeus' house, as they were hearing that, Jesus tells this parable. So Jesus is still in Zacchaeus' home. But even more so, remember what has just been said in verse 10 to Zacchaeus. Remember how he closes, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Even after Jesus has talked to these people and he's made this point, he is now using this parable to illustrate it and to impress it upon 
the hearers. He is telling his disciples, he is calling his disciples to devote their time and their energy to things that are most important. Now, my friends, stop for a moment and think about your life right now. And what is the most important thing to you? What do you think is the most important thing drawing, calling for your attention, for your labor, for your energy? Is it to seek and to save? that which is lost? Is it to reach people who don't know the Lord Jesus Christ? Is that one thing that is most important to you? That's what Jesus is doing here. He said, the Son of Man came to seek and to save, and this parable is designed to answer that issue. More specifically then, in verse 11, we read that Jesus spoke this parable because he was near Jerusalem and there were those who thought that the kingdom of God was going to come immediately. Now that's very significant. Even after all, All Jesus has told his disciples over and over and over again, he's tried to teach them about the spiritual nature of the kingdom. That this is not about physical comfort. This is not about physical power. This is not about physical comforts. This is about the kingdom of God and its spiritual nature. And yet they're still thinking in terms of, of an outward, external kingdom, a kingdom of glory and power, and they think that kingdom is going to be inaugurated when Jesus gets to Jerusalem. So their minds are are trained on that particular topic. I think this is further indicated just by way of comparison to both Matthew and Mark, who put right in the middle of this discussion of Jesus uh, dealing with with, um, the various situations that he's dealing with and we've just read about, and they put right in the middle of that the request of James and John, or perhaps we should say James and John's mother, who comes to Jesus, and you remember what she said. Lord, I want you to do whatever we ask. Well, what do you want? I want that James and John, my sons, they're fine boys. I want them to sit at your right hand and your left when you come into your kingdom. That's what the disciples are thinking about as they are approaching Jerusalem, as they are in this very time period. And even after the death and resurrection, do you remember what happens 
in Acts chapter 1. You may want to turn over there, Acts chapter 1. And Jesus meets with his disciples for 40 days after the resurrection. He appears to them numerous times. And then they ask him, verse 6, Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? They're still thinking about a physical kingdom. They're still thinking about power and glory for the nation of Israel. Now, my friends, the parable before us tonight is designed to correct that thinking about the returning uh, uh, or the coming of the kingdom in an immediate sense. And Jesus tells this parable, but it's not just for the disciples or those around him. It speaks to us at well. And the lesson is the same today as it was then, 2,000 years ago. And I think it comes down to this. Jesus is telling us, stop speculating about the future and concentrate on serving God now. Doing business for God now. You know, it's so easy for us to get distracted, for us to have concerns about all kinds of different things. We, we want to debate and, and speculate about the end times. We want to worry about things that we can't change by all the worry in the world. We want to zero in on Pleasure now, riches now, comfort now, honor now. And Jesus in this parable is calling us back and saying, look, there's work to do. Now get busy. Do business for God now, for him and for his kingdom, especially in this area. Seeking and saving those that are lost. So that kind of gives us this, the sense of why Jesus told this parable. Why do we need this parable? Because we, like them, get sidetracked. And Jesus is saying, here is the business I want you to be doing. Well, secondly, I want us to consider the parallels of this parable and particularly those, how those parallels intersect with our own lives and thinking. Now with previous parables, we have seen the, that in, in most of those cases, there is one primary thought and that is generally true. However, that does not mean we need to close our eyes to the glaring parallels that clearly apply. And all we have to do is just read the elements of, of this parable as Jesus tells it. Here is a, a, a king going into a far country. Our Savior is speaking of himself. He is about to leave this world. 
and he is going into a far country. He is going to be there for a while. He is making reference to himself and the servants, both good and bad. The good servants are those who profess allegiance and service to the king. The bad are those who do not use the money for his glory or for his increase. The citizens who are mentioned here are are those who absolutely refuse the authority of Christ. They don't want Christ ruling over them. And certainly the king's return speaks of our Lord's own return and the final judgment, beginning with us, but also including the wicked. Now, my friends, each of these points, I think, are very clear, and they really don't need a lot of explanation. The big question is, what are the minas? What do the minas represent? What exactly is Jesus talking about that God gives to each one of us in the same amount? So we've already talked about the fact that these, these designations of money, relatively small compared to the talents. But as we think about the parallels of this, this parable in our lives, what is it that God has given to every one of us? If we are followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, if we are trusting in him, we are Christians then what do we all possess in equal measure? You see, this is not just a a general reference to spiritual gifts. Because with most spiritual gifts, different people possess them in different degrees. Back in in Romans chapter 12, we have the, the Apostle Paul speaking of this when he talks about the the different gifts in Romans 12 and verse 6, having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given, let us use them. And then he names a number of them, prophecy, ministry, teaching, exhorting, giving, leading, showing mercy. I think most of us understand different people have different strengths in the use of different gifts. Some are especially gifted in teaching. Some are are gifted in their faith. Some are very gifted in the way that they show mercy and have compassion upon people. Others are especially gifted with wisdom. But that's not what we're looking at here. In the parable of the minas, each servant is given the same amount and told, do business till I return. And that applies to us. What then is the one thing that we all have in equal measure? Well, I suppose there, there may be more than one answer as you think about it, but in light of the context, in light of where Jesus is, 
in light of what has just been said, I believe the answer to that question is the Word of God. It is the truth of the gospel. If we know Christ, young or old, male or female, boy or girl, if we know Christ, we know equally the clear revelation of the way of salvation. Each one of us have our Bible in our hands, maybe electronic version, but we all have our Bibles. We know and we have heard the truth of John 14, 6, that Jesus Christ is the only way. He's the truth and the life. No man comes to the Father but by him. We know, we have heard the truth of Romans 10, 13, that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. We know, we have heard Paul speaking to the Philippian jailer, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved and your household. Here again, brothers and sisters, we have the truth. And it is the business of the church to take that truth and to share it with those who have not heard. To tell it to those who are dead in trespasses and sins in order that they might have life eternal. That's the business Jesus wants us to be doing. He's given us all the same thing the same gifts, the same grace in this regard. And he said, do business till I return. Now that does not mean that all of us are going to be equally effective. He gives the same amount to one servant who makes 10 more. But the next servant that comes only makes five. Not everyone is going to see the same amount of fruit. Peter preaches one day on the day of Pentecost and 3,000 people are converted. William Carey, the father of modern missions, went to India and he preached for seven years. Seven years before he saw his first convert. We don't all have to be five-talent men or women. You don't have to be a great spokesman. You don't have to have pristine intellect. You don't have to have knowledge that can answer every objection. Remember how Charles Spurgeon was converted as he was prevented from going where he intended to go to church that Sunday in a snowstorm, and he goes in the church, and the minister couldn't even make it to church. And one of the men of the church got up and with broken language tried to work through Isaiah 45. Look unto me and be saved, all ends of the earth. 
And he's repeating the same truth over and over. Look unto me. This is all you have to do. You don't have to do anything dramatic. Just look. You can do that. Everybody can do that. Look unto me. Look unto God. Look unto Christ. And be saved. And right there at the end of the sermon, he looks up into the balcony and says, You there in the balcony, you look miserable. Look unto Jesus. And be saved. He wasn't a powerful preacher. He wasn't even a preacher at all. But God used his ministry. His faithful service. With just one minor. He served the Lord. And think of the change that has taken place. As a result of that. Everyone may not produce the same amount. But brothers and sisters, we all have the truth. We know the truth of the gospel. Share it with those who have never heard, with those who do not know. Start with a list. Perhaps tonight when you get home, perhaps right now if you're taking notes, write down one name one person who you know does not know the Lord and begin to pray. Pray for opportunity to speak with them. Pray for them to have a receptive heart. Pray for boldness to speak the truth in love. You don't have to be a great evangelist to share the gospel. The Son of Man came to seek and to save that which is lost. And he gives to each one of us the same amount of truth that we might use it now for his glory. Well, lastly, let's look at the consequences of the parable. This parable has many lessons We've mentioned a couple of them that God has given each of us a knowledge of salvation and he calls upon us, each one of us, to use that knowledge and to be about the business of his father in giving that truth to others. But there's one more thing that stands out and that is what's going to happen when the king returns? When the nobleman returns... Well, there are three categories that are being presented here. The first are the faithful servants. And though we do not all produce the same amount of spiritual fruit, is it not surprising that there is a reward to all who faithfully serve? It doesn't matter whether you make ten or you make five or you make two. To all those who faithfully serve, God graciously grants a reward. But what happens in the second case to those who do nothing? Who take their mina and wrap it in a napkin or a handkerchief and just keep it. Don't do anything. 
Well, there are some very solemn words spoken by the king for those who do nothing. My friends, if you haven't figured it out, and you're sitting here tonight doing nothing, nothing different is not an option. Those who do nothing hear these words, take away from him what he has. Does that mean that you can lose your salvation? That's kind of what it sounds like. Here is, here is one of the servants of the king, and he loses what he has. Does he lose his salvation? Well, I think most of us know well enough that that is obviously not the case. The fact is, this servant was not a true servant of the king. As a matter of fact, the king calls him a wicked servant. He was lazy. He did not even put the mina in the bank so it could earn interest. He is a, a servant that lived in fear of his master. He is a servant that thought evil things of his master. And brothers and sisters, that is not the way we should think of God or of Christ. Turn over to 2 Timothy. As Paul is nearing the end of his life and he's writing to Timothy and reminding him of the charge that has been given to him and of the faith that has been given to him. Listen to what Paul says. We know verse 7 of 2 Timothy 1. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. But knowing that, what I want us to look at is verse 6. Therefore, I remind you to stir up the gift of God that has been given to you. Brothers, I'm here tonight. Sisters, I'm here tonight to encourage you. Stir up the gift that God has given you. He's given to each of us a knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ and of the salvation that he brings. Stir up that gift and use it for the glory of God. The last thing we see here is how the king responds to the rebel citizens. Now these citizens made no pretense about their thoughts, about their desires. They absolutely refuse the rule of Christ. And they reject Christ's authority over them. I don't know exactly why, but it seems like this, this struck home with me this afternoon as I thought about all the, the tension and all the, the discussion and all the, the news coverage of the whole situation with abortion. As soon as the Supreme Court reversed Roe v. Wade. But you know what I have not heard one single time in all the discussion, in all the hostility, in all the yelling and screaming and, and protesting, I have not heard one person say, what does the Bible say? What does God say 
about all this. Forget your liberty. Forget your choice. What does God say? These people, these rebellious citizens said, I don't care what God says. I don't care what the king says. Right now, my friends, Jesus Christ is seated at the right hand of God the Father, and he's waiting until his enemies are made his footstool. And he will come back. And when he does, he is going to destroy the wicked. When that happens, it will be too late to change. It will be too late to tell that person now about Christ when Christ returns. I can't remember who said it. Somebody pointed out that if we truly believed in hell, we would be fervent evangelists. If we truly believed men were going to be destroyed by the wrath of the Lamb, we would tell them. And right now, God is calling all men to repent. He is making open the the free offer of the gospel. Turn, turn and live. Why will you die, O Israel? Turn, turn to me and live. We can, I believe, to all those that we know without Christ, can respond like the psalmist in Psalm 2. When he talks about, at the close of the psalm, serve the Lord with fear. Hear, O kings, be instructed, you of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son. Give your allegiance to the Son of God, to the Lord Jesus Christ. For blessed are all those who put their trust in him. What's the most important thing in your life right now? I believe, based on this parable, it's doing business for God until he returns in telling others what we know about life and life eternal. Let's pray together. Father, we acknowledge that we are weak and frail creatures of dust. We are self-conscious. We are fearful to speak your truth. Lord, fill us. Fill us this night with your spirit. And give us the words to say that we might speak a word in season to those that are weary. We pray, Lord, that you would use us as vessels, as instruments to bring glory to Christ and to seek and to save those that are lost. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's take just a few moments and pray over the things that we have heard.